Dawkins is probably the most prominent uh, uh, English uh, member of the New Atheism, uh, a term that was coined by a, a magazine article in uh, Wired magazine by Gary Wolfe uh, in 2006, but it's since been a term that the movement itself has sort of adopted, a bit like the way in which uh, early Christians adopted the term Christian, which was at first a, a term of abuse uh, for them. Uh, Gary Wolfe was uh, an agnostic and did this article called The New Atheism, No Heaven, No Hell, Just Science. And that gives you uh, a kind of uh, precy of the, uh, uh, the scientism that's at the core of the new atheism. And also the fact that he uh, called his article The Church of the Non-Believers. Uh, and uh, he was uh, sort of portraying them as a sort of uh, fundamentalist brand of atheism, uh, in a sense, from his viewpoint. He said that the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Uh, religion is not only wrong, according to such people, it's, it's evil as well. It's not just an intellectually mistaken position, but it's uh, bad for you and bad for society. So what would uh, C.S. Lewis uh, say to Richard Dawkins? Uh, well, let me cluster this under the following four uh, important categories, as it were. First of all, that Dawkins has a self-contradictory view of the relationship between faith and knowledge uh, and issues about faith and knowledge and how we know things lie very much at the heart of the new atheism. Secondly, that Dawkins has a self-contradictory view of freedom and responsibility uh, and this is particularly important given how the new atheism is not just an attack on an intellectual position that they think is mistaken, but it's a, an attack on religion as a uh, belief system that has effects upon people's lives and thus upon the public square as well. Thirdly, that Dawkins has a self-contradictory view of ethics. Um, Dawkins, along with many other new atheists, are, is an inveterate uh, moralizer. Uh, he weighs against the, the evils of religion and so on. And so it's important to dig into, well, how does he understand talk about right and wrong? And uh, finally, a self-contradictory view of Jesus. Now, it, it doesn't get worse for a viewpoint, philosophically speaking, than being self-contradictory. Um, that means that a view cannot be true uh, if it contradicts uh, itself. Uh, so I'm uh, pushing some uh, very strong criticisms here uh, in this lecture. So let's start with the idea that Dawkins has a self-contradictory view of, of faith and knowledge. Uh, scientism, not to be confused with science, but scientism uh, is the, uh, the view that attributes uh, exclusive or at least near-exclusive rights over knowledge to empirical, ultimately connected to your senses, uh, scientific kind of methodology, uh, verification kind of methodology to knowing things. Um, and it's the attributing exclusive or near-exclusive competency to that kind of scientific methodology that uh, defines scientism. And the new atheism is a deeply scientistic 
uh, movement, and Richard Dawkins is deeply scientific in his writings. According to Dawkins, basically all beliefs fall into one of two categories. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, a yeah. question on scientism. Mm. Um, does scientism necessarily presuppose something like positivism? So would a, a, a Dawkins or someone mm. else who follows scientism say that um, we don't have any a priori presuppositions on the world? Right, a very interesting uh, question about um, whether Dawkins would say we don't have any before experience, a priori uh, uh, knowledge, as it were, because he's advancing uh, a scientism. Um, so um, I, I think when you go into the detail of it, you will see that the, Dawkins would be comfortable using um, reasoning, logic, kind of to sort out the, the consistency and the, and the meaning of our language, of our, of our claims about reality, but that in order to claim that um, our language is really giving us information that matches the way reality is, that we really know something about reality, he says you have to get at that through empirical uh, methodology. Uh, so... On the one hand, he says, there are proper evidence-based belief about reality. Uh, and on, on the other hand, is blind faith. So every belief is either a proper evidence-based belief or it's a matter of blind faith. And he, he just defines faith. He says, faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a, even a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith because you'd believe on the basis of the evidence, and that's a proper evidence-based belief, you see. Well, C.S. Lewis famously said that um, faith is uh, the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. So he's not uh, thinking of a, an opposition between uh, faith and reason, uh, faith and scientific information about the world and so on, but rather... Uh, holding on to things, continuing to believe in things that you have come to believe, despite temptations uh, to the contrary, uh, say. Um, he said that now I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Uh, unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Um, I think Lewis would note that Dawkins has too narrow an understanding of, of reason, of knowledge. Uh, Dawkins is constricting... Uh, being reasonable and having knowledge to having to go through the, the gate of empirical knowing. And although Lewis would include empirical knowing within knowledge and within reason upon which one's faith can be based, uh, he would expand it and in particularly include it back to this question about knowing things uh, a priori just through rational intuition, 
one might say. The, the Dawkins view, uh, you could boil it down to this, that the, the idea seems to be for Dawkins that every belief, in order to qualify as being rational, to be a rational belief, it must be justified by evidence, empirical evidence. But that view is self-contradictory. If you try and say, does it meet its own standard? Can you apply it to itself with consistency? Well, no, because that rule entails an infinite regress that could never be satisfied. If my rule is, um, I'm not going to count any belief as rational until I have an empirical justification for believing it. So should I believe A? Well, my question should be, well, only uh, if I can fulfill this condition that I have B, some empirical evidence that supports the truth of A. But, ah, should I believe B? And that B really does support the truth of A. Well, of course, only if I have some empirical evidence that makes that a reasonable thing to think. Call that C. And you can see we're actually just generating an infinite regress that you can never uh, fulfill the demand that every belief in order to be rational must be justified by some empirical evidence. Quite apart from the fact that that kind of scientific rule of knowledge is open to obvious uh, counter-examples, uh, I think, um, claims like it is, it is morally wrong to torture small children just for fun, or uh, rainbows are beautiful, or um, the laws, the basic laws of reason by which you make any arguments in any field, including in science, um, that the law of non-contradiction is true, that a view that contradicts itself can't be true. Um, is it possible to give any empirical justification for that? No. Indeed, it's not even possible to give you a logically uh, a valid argument for thinking that the law of non-contradiction is true, because in the process I'd have to assume the truth of the law of non-contradiction because it's so basic to the process of reasoning about anything. And so as Lewis said, you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. In that sense, proof rests upon the unprovable which just has to be seen. You just see, you just have the rational insight that the law of non-contradiction is true. That um, it's obviously true that if Socrates is immortal and if all mortals die, then it must be the case that Socrates will die. That that law of, of logical deduction there works is something that you just get, as it were. It's not something you believe because you have an argument for it. And indeed, trying to do that would end up arguing in a circle and begging the question. So uh, Lewis would endorse the idea that we have to have a broader foundation for our knowledge than Dawkins is willing to admit. And because Dawkins only admits this very narrow 
uh, way of knowing, he ends up uh, contradicting himself. As an atheist, Lewis rejected scientism. He didn't get sucked into the oncoming uh, positivist kind of atmosphere of the early 20th century. Uh, in his um, little essay, De Futilitate, Lewis says, um, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. But the distinction made between scientific and non-scientific thoughts will not easily bear the weight we're attempting to put on it. And as an atheist, trained in the, in the classical philosophical tradition, Lewis uh, took uh, metaphysical, philosophical arguments seriously, um, particularly the argument from evil uh, against God. But of course, empirical methods, science, can't uh, justify m objective moral views about things. It just describes things. It doesn't prescribe things. It describes what happens to someone when you torture them. But no amount of science and use of test tubes and x-rays and what have you is going to tell you whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. But Lewis, even as an atheist, he wanted to argue, you know, certain things really are bad. That's something I know by rational intuition, if you like. And that's part of why I don't believe in God, you see. So, any questions at, at that stage? Because we're going to move on to another topic momentarily. Marvellous. Also, I think Lewis would argue that Dawkins has a self-contradictory view of freedom and responsibility. And as a subcategory of this, uh, that includes intellectual responsibility. And I see a heart of a lot of the new atheist Dawkins-esque critic, critique of religion is that because he thinks religion means having blind faith, that's what makes religion dangerous. Um, it's not just the suicide bomber who has blind faith and therefore does stupid things. It's the, the mildest-mannered English C of E vicar at the Garden Fate handing out slices of carrot cake <laughs> before he goes off to do some social work. You, know, you might say, oh, he's doing nothing but good for society, even if you think you know, he's wrong to believe in God. But Dawkins would say, no, um, that vicar is legitimising being a person of faith. And that means having blind faith and not paying attention to evidence. It means not living up to your intellectual responsibilities by definition. And that's why religion is not only wrong, it's, it's bad. That's the fundamental evil of religion for Dawkins. But there are difficult questions to be posed to Dawkins about his understanding of free will and moral responsibility. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, God created things which had free will, and that means creatures which can go either wrong or right. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines would be hardly worth creating. But for Richard Dawkins, we basically are 
automata are machines. We're, we are biological uh, machines. Again, in mere Christianity, Lewis says, the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. But the law of human nature, and he's in, in this context discussing about the moral argument, the moral law, he means here. The moral law tells you what human beings ought to do and not to do. But we can fail to obey it in a way that we, I can't just fail to obey the law of gravity. Um, so there's a distinction to be drawn between the moral law and the physical law. And a key part of, the, of our moral knowledge is this idea that I can, I can fail to live up to my responsibilities. And Dawkins wants to say, look, you religious people, you're being naughty. You're not living up to your intellectual responsibilities in the way that you should do. But here is what you might call the naturalistic argument against free will. If you start out from the position, a position which Dawkins as a materialist does start out from, in premise one here, that that purely physical systems behave according to the laws of physics, and so they lack libertarian free will. And that secondly, again, a position that Dawkins as a materialist seems to hold, the idea that two human beings are purely physical systems. He doesn't believe we have some sort of supernatural soul or spirit or that there's a mind distinct from the body, the brain. But if one and two are true, then it follows by the laws of logic into which we have rational insight uh, that three, therefore, human beings lack libertarian free will. Here's what Richard Dawkins said on the, the Edge Foundation website about his view of human nature and free will and determinism and the criminal justice system. Uh, human brains, he says, though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. So your brain is basically a biological computer machine system governed by the laws of physics. And there's nothing more to you, on Dawkins' view, than basically your brain and your body. So then he talks on to talking about murderers. Isn't the murderer, he says, just a machine with a defective component? Or a defective upbringing, defective education, defective genes? But some combination of nature and nurture, all of which are purely physical things, on his worldview, causes that machine to work in a way that we don't endorse. Concepts like blame and responsibility, says Dawkins, are banded about freely where human wrongdoers are concerned. But... Doesn't a mechanistic view of the nervous system, a material understanding of what a person is, make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? And he's intimating that, yes, indeed it does. He's not just asking a question there. Because he goes on to say, any crime is in principle to be blamed on, not the criminal, to be blamed on, antecedent conditions, physical conditions, acting through the accused's material physiology, heredity, and environment, presumably via 
the laws of nature, laws of physics, chemistry, and so on. So Dawkins ends by asking, why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers when we should, interesting use of the term in this context, when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? So we're saying it doesn't make sense to conceive of the criminal justice system as about punishing people in any sense. We sort of medicalize or engineerize, if you like, the criminal. Say, you need, you're dangerous, you need putting away in the garage to protect the rest of us until we can fix you. And if we can't fix you, then we'll keep you locked up in the garage. And you can see that behind that that train of thought, he's basically taking us through that naturalistic argument against libertarian free will that we looked at. So the question I think Lewis might put would be something like this. If, Professor Dawkins, everything about a person's is, as you say, governed by the laws of physics, surely blaming them for their intellectual failings, um, such as, I don't know, having blind faith, say, uh, surely it would make as, about as much sense as, as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. Uh, so how could anyone, uh, for example, Christians, uh, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations uh, if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? And it seems to me that the obvious answer to this question is, well, they can't. <laughs> that Dawkins is trying to have it both ways. And on to my sub-question. Indeed, to push the knife in further, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with Dawkins' worldview when that worldview is one that denies any reality to intellectual obligations? How can I take seriously any argument that Richard Dawkins wants to make for why I should abandon my Christianity and adopt his brand of atheism if that means that I also have to deny that I'm intellectually responsible or obligated in any sense? <laughs> Again, it seems to me the obvious answer to that question is, well, I, I, I really can't. That, that really doesn't makes sense. I'd be both saying and not saying that I'm obligated to change my mind. Um, and you can't uh, say something and it's contrary and sincerely mean it uh, and be right at the same time. It's self-contradictory. Is there anything that you'd like to, to comment upon or, or raise a question about in Dawkins and, and free will and moral responsibility there. Yes, sir. Yeah, talking about intellectual responsibility, when I read Dawkins' book, um, I felt that he, that he argues not as rational as he claims to do, but that mm. his argument is fueled by strong emotions, hatred, mm. maybe anxiety. And I wanted to ask, uh, what do you believe... Um, where does this hatred come from? What is he maybe anxious about? Mm. And um, where, 
where does his motivation for his sort of atheist mission mm. actually come from? Since he has no great commandment to, uh, you know, sure. to, to persuade others yeah. uh, for ideas. Yeah. Well, this is a, a question, in one sense, for a question outside of my disciplinary competence, because it's a question about the, the inner psychology and motivation of Professor Dawkins, who, although I've read a lot of his, his work, I don't, I don't know him personally, and I'm, I'm certainly not uh, trained in the, the psychological disciplines and so on to be able to sort of give you a psychoanalysis of why he's behaving this, that, or the other way. I can make some sort of educated guesses to an extent, uh, and I think um, on the sort of on the uh, the one hand, uh, you could uh, try and attribute uh, his motivations to some um, some good, some pure motivations. Uh, he says he wants to stand up for reason and rationality. That he's worried about people undermining uh, science, which he sees as important to the, the good and the, the health and prosperity and so on of society, um, that he is against blind faith. Well, you know, I'm against blind faith as a Christian philosopher. I, I would agree about that. I just think he's wrong to think that all faith is automatically blind. Um, so maybe he is uh, misinformed uh, about um, Christianity and religion, um, but that he has some good motivations in critiquing it. Um, but the more that he uh, is critiquing a subject, again, outside of his specialism, and his specialism is training in the sciences and particularly in zoology, and yet here he is making uh, book-length critiques of um, different theological viewpoints and so on. Um, and it seems to me that he does that often out of a rather deep ignorance, and that indeed that ignorance is, is such that it's, it's really culpable, that the kind of ignorance that he could rectify by reading a few introductory textbooks uh, would go a long way to sharpening up some of what he says, to avoiding some of the obvious mistakes that he and other new atheists uh, fall into. Um, whether he uh, has any um, you know, darker pers personal motivations or whatever, uh, I, I wouldn't want to dare to say. I know there is a story about uh, he, that he himself relates about having been fondled as a child by a schoolmaster in a, in a church school. Um, but I think it would be a, a massive extrapolation from that little bit of data to say, oh, there you go, it's because of a childhood trauma that he associates with the church and so on. And um, that sort of takes us down the route of, of, uh, of uh, perhaps avoiding engaging with his arguments by attacking the man and an ad hominem uh, attack, and so I, I would prefer, um, within my competency at least, to, to stay at the level of, of engaging with his arguments um, rather than trying to dismiss what he says on the basis of some sort of psychoanalytical uh, investigation of, of his motivations. Um, yes? Uh, when he's saying, as you just quoted, any crime, however, Mm. Brings you to the blame and so forth. Uh, doesn't that apply also to any argument? I mean, any right. Argument, any argument you put forward. So, why should there be any mm. obligations to accept his argument? 
Exactly, and this, this, is, this is my point about intellectual obligations. Um, how can um, he criticise people for not living up to intellectual obligations to follow an argument or believe something that he says has overwhelming evidence for it or, or against it or, you know... Um, how can I be, I think it's reasonable for me to uh, convert to a viewpoint on the basis of an, of an argument or a rational reason when the viewpoint that I'm, convert, that I'm potentially converting to is one that denies there are such things as rational obligations to change my mind because of, because exactly as you say, every, everything that I do is caused by my Antecedent conditions in my environment and my heredity and and so on. So you're you're really uh, draining away the meaningfulness of the concept of saying I am reasoning about things, <laughs> just as much as you're draining away the concept of saying that, that the murderer is is guilty of having done what they they knew they shouldn't have done. Exactly. So Dawkins has a self-contradictory view of ethics, and obviously there's a, a close relationship, again, between the, the concepts of free will and moral responsibility for things, moral responsibility, and actually, well, what do you mean when you're talking about morals, about ethics, about right and wrong, what we should and shouldn't do? And again, despite his constant moralising, especially, of course, against the, the evils and ills of religion, and it's important that I, I think that we hold our hands up sometimes and, and, and note, yes, you know, Christians do evil things. We are sinners. We are fallen. The church has been involved in some terrible things in history. Um, so are atheists. Uh, it's not particularly fruitful as a line of, of argumentation about anything to get into a sort of numbers game on well, which kind of ideology has led to the most number of people being killed over history or things like this. I don't think that really gets us very far. But Dawkins critiques and sometimes quite rightly some of the evils of religion and religious people. But again, his, his scientism actually leads him to reject the objective reality of any moral values. So he, he speaks like a prophet denouncing the nation on the basis of apparent moral facts, moral truths about how we should and shouldn't behave, but on the other hand, he espouses a moral subjectivism. So he said famously in Scientific American, he said, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, in other words, basically no God, no evil, no good, Nothing but pitiless indifference. There's just the material universe doing its thing according to the laws of nature. No good, no evil, he says. Indeed, in the afterword uh, to the book, What is Your Dangerous Idea?, edited by John Brockman, uh, he says this, There is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, which you would say, well, we get at through science, empirical information. And on the other hand, ideas about what we ought to do, 
normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. Uh, This is a recapitulation of the logical positivism of the the 1930s and 40s, which is long dead within the the, the fields of professional philosophy, uh, of which the the prime advocate in Britain at Oxford University, uh, A.J. Eyre, who wrote uh, a book called Language, Truth and Logic that, that pushed logical positivism and the the idea that only really empirically knowable things, uh, things that you could at least potentially check out with the senses, are even meaningful to talk about, and that things like talk about moral values was was literally nonsense. Um, Even A.J. Eyre, later in life, abandoned that position and said he was mistaken. And it it was wrong, and he wished he hadn't been so dogmatic about it at the time, and so on. Um, Indeed, I was just uh, reading uh, earlier today um, in uh, Os Guinness's book, The Case for Civility, and I came across a little anecdote uh, from Os Guinness. And um, he talks about the fact that he had shared a a, a train carriage uh, with uh, A.J. Eyre. And as he admitted, he says, uh, what he thought was a a guillotine against faith turned out to be a, quote, blind alley. He was candid with me about the failure of his principle of logical verificationism. Quote, I wish I had been more consistent, he chuckled. Uh, Any iconoclast who brandishes a debunker's sword should be required to demonstrate it publicly on his own cherished beliefs. End of quote from A.J. Eyre, who was the main proponent of this kind of view back in the 30s. And here is Dawkins as the sort of the lone flag carrier uh, for this viewpoint, long abandoned even by its prime proponent. So, really, Dawkins, moral ideas have no meaning? So, when Dawkins says in, in The God Delusion, Uh, Hitler and Stalin were, by any standard, spectacularly evil men. One is minded to agree with him until one remembers that what he means by this is that there weren't any standards. There are no standards in an objective sense that Hitler and Stalin are falling short of. What he's really saying is Hitler and Stalin were, in my subjective personal opinion that's part of the changing zeitgeist of society, Um, spectacularly evil men, but by evil, I'm not referring to anything that has a meaning. So what does he mean? (laughs) Well, according to Richard Dawkins himself, he doesn't mean anything (laughs) when he says that. So again, when he says, uh, page 308 of The God Delusion, um, faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and Brooks no argument, well, not only do I think he's wrong about the nature of faith, but what does he mean by saying it's evil? Seems like he wants to be criticising faith, religious people, for not meeting some sort of standard of morals, of being reasonable, that they ought to live up to, and so on. Um, 
but elsewhere he himself explicitly drains away the possibility that he uh, really should be taken seriously, as it were, when he's saying that. So Dawkins seems to be saying this. On the one hand, we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion is an objectively bad thing in that it encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations and that leads on to all sorts of evils. On the other hand, by the way, there are no objective moral values. (laughs) Giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Whereas, as I say, for Lewis, even as an atheist... Evil was an objective fact, what he called, quote, a real thing, a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. Lewis said, several years before I read Lucretius, uh, I felt the force of his argument, and it's surely the strongest of all for atheism. And then quoting Lucretius, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. Lewis said, if nature if the the space-time-matter system is indeed the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our moral standards. They, like anything else, must be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind physical forces. And all we say about nature red in tooth and claws is quite inexplicable on the theory that we are simply natural creatures. If this world's the only world, how did we come to find its laws either so dreadful or so comic? Why do we react against that blind, pitiless... Why use the pitiless indifference? If there is no straight line elsewhere, said Lewis, how did we discover that nature's line is crooked? In other words, he's arguing if, if the materialist, naturalistic worldview is true, then nothing is objectively evil and Richard Dawkins clearly agrees with that premise. But secondly, something is objectively evil. Lewis wanted to retain that so he could have the the moral argument against God. But the result of holding both of those to be true is three, therefore metaphysical naturalism is false. (laughs) It doesn't give room for the reality of objective moral value. And hence, Lewis uh, said uh, the, uh, that his atheistic views were, were too simplistic. Things must be more complicated than that. And started down a long road that eventually uh, led him to Christ. Uh, what's my uh, timing doing like? Do I have time to do this fourth section? Yeah, marvellous. So any, uh, any questions you want to cover on the sort of what Dawkins... Uh, his, his meaning or thinking he's doing when he's is using ethical language to criticise religious people. Great. I love a satisfied audience. We shall move on to uh, looking at Dawkins and his self-contradictory view of Jesus. Uh, the New Atheists as a whole do very little interaction with the historical evidence about Jesus. Primarily because they don't think there is any. Uh, I mean, Richard Dawkins says things like, the only difference between the four Gospels and Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, is that The Da Vinci Code uh, is a modern novel, a piece of fiction, and that the four Gospels are ancient pieces of fiction. (laughs) Um, 
for Dawkins and the rest of the new atheists, it's as if they have sort of uh, imbibed uh, a Boltman-esque 19th century German liberal critique of the Bible uh, second-hand and then failed to pay attention to the next 150 years of New Testament studies uh, and think that this qualifies them to critique the historical Jesus. But um, if you want more on that, I did a, a, a pre-forum seminar specifically responding to new atheist critiques of the historical Jesus. So I just want to take a, a, a sampling on this that would be close to Lewis's heart. Uh, and something that would be close to Lewis's heart, particularly because I think in the process of, of thinking about Christianity, Lewis read G.K. Chesterton. And you can find in the works of G.K. Chesterton the, uh, the, the germs of what became uh, the famous Lewis argument about Jesus uh, being either Lord or a lunatic or a liar, what's come to be known as the, the trilemma or the, uh, the mad, bad or God argument and, and so on. Uh, Lewis in Mere Christianity put it this way, and, and in context he wasn't precisely giving an argument for the deity of Christ, so much as giving an argument against saying what many atheists and what many new atheists uh, want to say about Jesus, that they think that he was a good moral teacher, but that he was not uh, special, not the son of God. And to that viewpoint, Lewis says this. Look, a man who was merely a man and said the, the sort of things that Jesus is reported to have said would not be a great moral teacher. Uh, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worth. That is, in other words, Jesus was a conniving, blaspheming heretic. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us. Now, as we'll see, that view that Lewis there is criticising is exactly the view of Jesus that Richard Dawkins holds. So here, at least, is one area of thinking about Jesus where um, Dawkins and Lewis come into direct uh, contact, as it were. So you see I've got a little flowchart diagram here. On the basis of the assumption that Jesus claimed divinity, and of course that opens up a whole other area of discussion and critiques that the that Dawkins and the rest of the new atheists would make. But on that assumption, you really face a number of dilemmas that pan out like this. Either that claim was true, which case, of course, Jesus is Lord, or it wasn't true. Now, if Jesus claimed to be divine, but that wasn't true, he was wrong about that, well... Did he believe his own claims or not? If he didn't believe his claims, then he was lying and worse. If he did believe his claims, but he was wrong, because they were false, well, then he is a lunatic on the level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg. 
how does Dawkins react to this series of dilemmas? Well, according to Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, he says, uh, it's even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all, as has been done by, among others, Professor G.A. Wells of the University of London. Um, But he's not too hung up on this. He just wants to sow a seed of doubt. He doesn't mention that Wells isn't a historian but a professor of German, of course. He doesn't mention that Wells' views have changed somewhat over the years, that Wells believes that the the putative Q source behind some of the uh, New Testament Gospels contain historical information about a Jewish teacher who just wasn't whom we think Jesus was. And in the end, Dawkins admits that Jesus probably existed. And you could go to a recent book by Bart Ehrman, um, who's a sort of New Testament skeptic, agnostic, that Dawkins likes quoting quite a lot in The God Delusion here. And uh, Bart Ehrman does a, a good job of arguing that clearly Jesus did exist and we can know some things about him. Uh, Jesus was indeed known to exist in pagan and Jewish circles within a century of his life, for example, says Omen. Paul knew some facts about Jesus' life, and he knew some of his teachings, and he knew his closest disciple Peter, and he knew his brother James, personally. If Jesus didn't exist, you'd think that his brother would know about it, says Bar Omen. I think that's a great line. So, Dawkins toys with but ultimately rejects simply saying Jesus didn't exist. And indeed, he ends up uh, really admitting that you can know some things about Jesus through the historical records that we have. Because as we'll see, he does end up saying, well, I think Jesus was a great moral teacher. But how does he know Jesus was a great moral teacher? Well, by relying upon the historical evidence about what Jesus said in the first century. Um, So he must, to that extent at least, trust the historical evidence. It's just that he'll pick and choose which evidence he trusts on the basis of his prior worldview, basically. Um, So when the journalist Fanny Kiefer asked this question of Dawkins, when you read some of C.S. Lewis's work, why do you think someone who's a scholar is grabbed by faith? And that says a lot about our culture, doesn't it, that a journalist asks, why do you think a scholar is grabbed by faith? (laughs) Richard Dawkins replies, well you could pick a much bigger target than C.S. Lewis. We'll try and do an ad hominem on Lewis here, who was, after all, a professor of English. What, you mean a bit like the way in which Professor Wells is a professor of German? And so on. Okay, he can draw on Wells, I can draw on Lewis. Um, And no doubt a very good one. Um, But when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. It didn't seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Well, what an interesting response to a supposedly pathetic argument, I would say. Dawkins is really saying, well, okay, but we need to add another possibility. You haven't got a big enough range of possibilities down at the bottom here, so you're giving us a a false dilemma, in a sense. And our new possibility on the end there uh, was uh, that Jesus claimed divinity and his claims were false, uh, and he believed those claims sincerely, 
um, but he was just honestly mistaken. It's not uh, that he was uh, off his rocker. A fourth possibility, says Dawkins in the God Delusion, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. After all, plenty of people are. Uh, sometimes I think the milk's in the fridge and I've left it out on the counter. Um, sometimes I think my wallet is in my coat pocket and it's on the bookshelf. Sometimes first century Palestinian Jews wander around thinking that they're uh, God and that people should worship them and pray in his name and things and that he has the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Um, but he was just sincerely and honestly mistaken about that, you know. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that would be bringing a whole other uh, discussion of evidence as well, wouldn't it? But So, yeah, I, I mean, as soon as you sort of describe the view to an audience, they start chuckling, because clearly that, that's practically the, the least plausible of the options on the list here at the bottom. And indeed, you start thinking, well, that's, that's so implausible, but why does Dawkins make that move? Why not say... As Lawrence Krauss says, Lawrence Krauss, new atheist, says, uh, yeah, Jesus, he, he seems to have existed, and he, he seems to have thought that he was God, and he was mad. So he bites the bullet and says, yeah, he was a loony. Why doesn't Dawkins do that? Why not pick that? You might well think that at least saying that would be more plausible than saying he was just honestly mistaken. Well, as Stephen T. Davis says, it is not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. And, and I love the word of, of Nicky Gumbel, the guy behind the Alpha Course, uh, who says, um, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says all Christians are deluded because they believe that there's a God. The God delusion. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't quite square. Yeah, I think that puts your finger on something uh, there. So I, I think we'll, we'll put a cross next to Jesus was honestly mistaken here. Uh, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way, says Mike King, would inevitably be considered insane in that context. But why? And here's the question. Why should Dawkins, and anyone else who makes this move, not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad, as Lawrence Krauss does, or as bad. Well, quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable, to not square with the historical evidence. And indeed, Dawkins himself has said there's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. So he sees the difficulty of putting him into that category. So he wants to avoid going there because he knows that's implausible. So again, we put a cross there. But then uh, Richard Dawkins has also said, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He talks about the moral superiority of Jesus. He says Jesus was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. He's acknowledging Jesus as a real historical figure whom he thinks the historical evidence gives us justification for knowing quite a lot about what he said about ethics here. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, is way ahead of its time. He's turned the other cheek, anticipated Gandhi and Martin Luther King by 2,000 years. 
It was not for nothing, says Dawkins, that I wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus. <laughs> and, and he notes, was later delighted to be presented with a T-shirt bearing that legend. Someone made up an Atheists for Jesus T-shirt and gave it to him. And he thought, oh, great. And he describes uh, Jesus, uh, in his article, Atheists for Jesus, he says he describes Jesus as, quote, a charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness and also that he's, he's, he talks about his genuinely original and radical ethics. So it's not really too surprising that Dawkins would feel uncomfortable with sticking Jesus into the conniving, lying, blaspheming, Category that he went around trying to delude his close friends and associates and family (laughs) about his status, trying to get them to worship him and things, support his ministry, etc., etc. That doesn't seem to square with the historical information we have about Jesus' character through his teachings, the depth, the perception the radical nature of his ethical opinions and life. Which pushes us, at least to some degree, on the basis of evidence, away from saying that Jesus' claims were false and, of course, towards saying that they were true. Now, I don't think, myself, that this is a sort of knock-down argument for the deity of Christ. I think... This argument, as Gregory Kukul talks about, putting a shoe, uh, putting a stone in the atheist's shoe, something that will make them uncomfortable as they think about it. And the more you think about it, the more uncomfortable you get, and the more you think, I I really need to investigate this person, Jesus. Um, And I think in the context of the other data that we can get historically about Jesus, of of his life and actions and claims and his miracles and his exorcisms, and his raising from the dead, and contemporary religious experience and so on, uh, this goes to make part of a very powerful cumulative case for the Christian view of Christ. And if you want to pursue that, another bit of advertising. I read a book a few years ago called Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, looking at five arguments that Christ and the earliest disciples gave for thinking that Jesus' self-identity was indeed correct. And I look at this argument among others. So Dawkins tries to get out of this by expanding the range of options at the bottom because he sees the implausibility of the the alternatives that Lewis puts on the table. Well, okay, he can try that out, but it really doesn't seem to be an option that's more plausible than the ones that Lewis gives. And we're still then driven towards the idea that Jesus is Lord. So for more on this and uh, other engagements between C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists on on things like the arguments for God, the argument from desire, the moral argument at at more depths and and so on, I refer you to uh, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. And we still have some time for some uh, questions uh, from you if there are any remaining. You can come and talk to me one-on-one at the end if you, if you want to, but um, if there's none now from the, the group, we'll, we'll 
pull up stumps there. I believe we'll have some admin to do uh, before we can slip away. Thank you very much for coming.